0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, I am David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm in New York City. It's cold. It's gray. We haven't had a spring. I'm in a crappy mood as a result, but we have people who are in better moods. They are all in Washington, D.C. or in that general vicinity, I think. That includes Corey Shocky of the American Enterprise Institute, doesn't it?
1: Indeed it does. I am in sunny Washington. The Cardinals are six games above 500, Which so my season will be downhill from here.
0: Okay, well, I then have to start before I get on to Rosa and Joe. Would you like to say a brief um, uh, word or two about the passing uh, out of baseball of Albert Pujols?
1: I don't believe Albert Pujols has passed out of baseball. I believe he has simply passed out of the Anaheim Angels, Uh, roster. You think somebody's
0: going to pick him up?
1: Oh, indeed. I think since the National League is about to commit the apostasy of adopting the designated hitter rule, I would not be at all surprised to see him return to St. Louis.
0: Well, that would be an interesting thing. It was sort of sad the way he got canned by the Angels. Um, and, And Cardinals fans would appreciate him in a way that Angels fans never could, I think, so.
1: That's right. He was, you know, he was a 13th round pick when the Cardinals took him. Um, and so it'd be nice to have him end his career with a team that saw his promise before anybody else could.
0: Uh, well, that's a nice, that's a nice idea. We also have in Washington, D.C., returned from her uh, travels across America, um, Rosa Brooks and, and Rosa, I know you're fascinated by, um, baseball <laughs> and Albert Pujols.
2: I am. I am. Yes. I, I, I always enjoy with music. Corey, talk about baseball.
0: Yeah. You, do, do you know who Albert Pujols is?
2: No, but that doesn't interfere in any way with my enjoyment.
0: Um, well, that's and that's that's important. Um, uh, well, glad you're here with us. Somebody who does know who Albert Pujols is, and I suspect in our nerdy audience there are not many people who do. But somebody else who does, I know, because he loves baseball, is Joe Serricione now at the Quincy Institute. You, what do you think of Albert Pujols, Joe?
3: Well, this Cory makes an excellent point because the DH coming to the National League, a number of people are talking about picking him up. I myself am, am wallowing in the doldrums of the Nationals' two losses at the hands of uh, the Yankees over the weekend in late innings. Our Nationals are now uh, way below 500, but Cory Shackey still owes me uh, <laughs> tickets to a game from the 2019 series when the nationals beat the st louis cardinals to go on and then win the world series and i haven't forgotten cory
1: nor have i my friend
0: <laughs> okay well i'm glad we started off with this stuff it's time for this podcast to get serious so cory <laughs> let me turn to the big news of the day looks like jennifer um lopez and ben affleck are back together how do you feel about that <laughs>
1: have to ask my sister how I feel about that she is the she is the entertainment and style maven of the Shaki tribe Uh, and since as you know David I live in a cave I have to wait to be told about
0: those things right you didn't know that they broke up 17 years ago right? (laughs) and that they apparently come back exactly in sequence with cicadas
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) correlation or causality let's discuss
0: (laughs) Let's get serious. I, I, there, there are a few things that are quite serious that I that I do want to discuss. One of the reasons that I thought it'd be great to have Joe back, besides the fact that he is bubbly and optimistic and rivals Corey and both of those things, um, is uh, and is in counterpoint to Rosa and both of those things.
2: bubbly and optimistic, yeah. bubbly is yeah. my middle name.
0: Yeah, but, uh, but it's a beverage that you turn to every morning to get your day going. <laughs> Um, is it, there's a lot uh, have been in the paper recently about the possibility of returning to the um, Iran accord. That uh, was Rosa refers to it, the Jikpoa. Jikpoa. Um And, 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 and there are a whole variety of different stories about this, including, you know, um a, a group of Democrats who just in the past day or two have now put forth the notice that the notion that, you know, the Biden administration should just get back in because it was a deal we said we would do. We did it. And it would, you know, and if we want to fix it later, we should fix it later. But this would, you know, show our kind of respect for international agreements by just hopping back in. And of course there's another group of people in DC who say, there's a flawed agreement, let's fix it first and then get back in it. And there's all sorts of posturing going on between the various parties. Since this is your area of expertise, Joe, where are we and where should we be?
3: I think we're in the end game here. Uh, The the Biden team Got a little late start for understandable reasons. They had a lot of other things to do. Their team wasn't in place. They didn't want to take up a divisive issue that would fracture the Democratic Party. They had to get their nominations through a Senate Foreign Relations Committee headed up by uh, hawkish uh, Senator Robert Menendez, who opposes the Poa, You know, is in that camp. So there's a lot of reasons why they wanted to delay it. But they couldn't just delay it. This is the one foreign policy issue that could, if it goes wrong, lead to military conflict in the region and perhaps growing into a war that could sink all of what Joe Biden's trying to do. So they, they are now... Earnestly engaged, the negotiations have been going well, but they've been dragging out in this end game period where they basically have agreement on two things. One, what exactly would the United States lift on sanctions? And Iran wants to make sure it's a complete sanctions package they feel they got taken advantage of the first time they did this. So they want to make sure that all the sanctions that be are be we lifted to allowing them to sell the oil on the markets they want to do. The second thing is exactly what Iran would do to to go, roll back, to go back into compliance with the JCPOA. And this gets a little tricky because they've now put in some advanced centrifuges that weren't part of the original deal. What happens to those advanced centrifuges? The US want and the Europeans want them destroyed. The Iranians want to just put them in storage. But the real drag seems to be the elections, the upcoming elections in Iran, which are scheduled for June, presidential elections, and it's had a predictable sort of paralyzing effect on the talks. Hardliners in Tehran do not want the reformist team headed up by President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Javad Zarif to get credit for this deal. Zarif might run for president. So there's this internal dissension on the Iranian side that seems to be slowing things down. It's possible That we could get a deal by the end of the month there's some deadlines i won't go into that that would encourage the teams to get together it's all a question i think it's really it finally it's true the ball really is in iran's court if they want to get a deal now is the time to do it the framework is basically there they just need a final push they say the negotiators are going to stay in vienna and work according to one spokesperson on one of the teams work night and day to get it done so we could see something um, by the end of next week that would be a realistic possibility
0: so corey have you ever used the term jikpoa other than talking to (laughs) rosa
2: no david i have not (laughs) but but you like it right you you think it's it's the right term right
1: (laughs) Absolutely. It brings Rosa in her playful intellectualism to mind. Um, And so I have a fondness for it. I am, however, skeptical that we will get an agreement before the autumn. Um, I think for exactly the reason that Joe said, which is the Iranian presidential election uh, that's coming up. And uh, one of the I think, largely unanticipated effects of the original Jikpoha, as Reza would say it, um, is that it appears to have strengthened the hand of the harder line elements in the Iranian political firmament. Um, And I think that will make it difficult for them to get to yes uh, anytime soon, especially because it sounds to me like what the Iranians are demanding is the lifting of all sanctions, that is sanctions that are on Iran for terrorism and other non-nuclear related affronts to security and civility. Uh, so uh, I don't, I'd, I'd be astonished if the Biden administration was willing to leave its uh, right flank exposed by lifting terrorism restrictions on Iran. Uh, Because I think that sets them up for congressional, independent congressional action against the agreement. The other thing is the Biden White House, in particular, is talking a very brave line about how they're not just going to settle for the nuclear agreement, but that they're going to get an agreement that restricts Iranian malign behavior, like interdicting uh, shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, the attacks on Saudi Arabia terrorism and and that's a really big lift Mm -hmm. i'd be very surprised if that happens anytime soon although i do think um, the biden administration has put its best talent on this problem and they're trying to find they're turning keys in the lock trying to find a way to sequence uh, u.s and iranian activity in a way that builds confidence as you build toward a broader agreement I
0: just don't see how that happens anytime soon. Uh, Rosa, there is this idea that's been put forth by some Democrats that um, basically the, the United States sort of has an obligation to honor the deal, get back in it, undo what Trump did, quite apart from all these other things. Um, but but as, a, as a legal scholar, what, what, what do you think about just that core issue
2: Oh, I, I, one of the very first things that that I and everybody else who teaches international law, teach our students as uh, our students is one of the bedrock principles of international law is the notion that states have to abide by their international obligations. And the idea here is that the international legal system is based on reciprocity and the need to increase predictability and stability. And that if states simply regard treaties uh, and other kinds of international agreements as, you know, if we feel like abiding by them, we will. And if we don't, we'll just change our mind uh, that we throw the whole international system into chaos. And, and obviously, you know, there nobody, nobody realistically expects that every state all the time will abide by every international legal obligation. Nobody expects that states won't Change their views and change their alliances, and their, that their interests will won't change, and they won't try to renegotiate treaties from time to time. Um, but but I think it, it it remains just as true now as it was 200 years ago that if you have a system where states are just you know blithely every few years randomly changing their minds, ducking out of things, canceling existing agreements, then you do have chaos. So I think you know it's it's a fine balance. Um, you know, no one is fine balance. And I do think that the Biden administration is right to have the, to err on the side of the default principle that unless there's a pretty darn good reason, a pretty compelling reason, uh, e.g. circumstances have changed in significant ways that we ought to revert to abiding by and sticking with the international agreements that we had entered into previously. uh, And that to the extent that Trump Created chaos uh, in global relations, not only in U.S. domestic politics, um, by pulling out of all kinds of things, including the Jicpoa. Um, that our default our, our default presumption, that we should we should try to get back into these things. You know, that said, I as I you know, it's not an absolute principle. Things do change, um, and you know, with treaties as with domestic contracts when there have been material changes in circumstances on one side or the other it's obviously legitimate for either party to say hey wait a second we agreed to this based on a b and c and things are a little bit different now I, and i think that's that's the tightrope that the biden team is trying to walk right now is recognizing on the one hand that there is a there is a strong argument for stability predictability and demonstrating to the world that we are not fickle and will will keep our promises uh, and at the same time, uh, not being trapped in something that just doesn't make sense uh, in part because the other party may not be acting entirely in good faith.
0: Joe, um, th- with regard to this one specific thing that 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 Corey was zeroing in on, which is this idea that um, it, in a, it's not just about the US going back into the deal, the Iranians want more. They want to they want to get sort of a pass on a bunch of these other sanctions. Um, I'm, I'm interested in where do you come out? Because the the, the reality is um, that's that's an additional deal. That's something separate. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that seems sort of inconsistent with how the Biden team has gone into it. Where, do, you, do you do you think there ought to be additional terms? Will there be additional terms?
3: The US position is that they are willing to remove all the sanctions that are inconsistent with the JCPOA, meaning all the sanctions that were put on by the Trump administration that would prevent the deal from working the way it was intended. So prevent the Iranians from doing international banking or getting insurance on their cargo ships, etc. And there are a number of sanctions that, that the uh, Trump administration put on in the name of terrorism, in the name of human rights, that were basically duplicating the nuclear-based sanctions that had been lifted, and they did this intentionally. Mark Dubowitz from the Foundation for Defense Democracy wrote in in Wall Street Journal that the intention was to create a wall of sanctions that would prevent a democratic president from re-entering the deal. So everybody understands this game, and there's a they, they want to dismantle those. So so yes, there will be some that are labeled terrorism that really are about nuclear and should be taken off. But there are another set of sanctions that truly are focused on terrorism and human rights and missiles, some Obama put on after the JCPOA. So those are gonna remain. I think the Iranians, their initial position was everything has to go. I think that was a negotiating position. They understand that some of these are gonna stay, but the the, the hard negotiations, one of the things that's delaying the agreement is exactly which ones will be lifted. And, and we'll have to see. The rest of those sanctions and getting rid of them and lifting them and the Iranian behavior that that warranted them, their support for Hamas and Hezbollah, their missile program, etc., their involvement in Yemen, that's going to have to be the the subject of additional talks after this. Most of the parties, no. All the parties involved in these negotiations right now, the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, the U.S., the Iranians, agree that, number one, you get the JCPOA back together. Let's just get this deal that Trump wrecked back together. It was working. And then use that as a foundation for another round of talks. Nobody wants to give away their hand on that. So it's unclear when that would happen, how that would happen. I don't expect there to be clarity on that. Uh, until sometime after the JCPOA negotiations are are concluded. And I agree with Corey just on this. If you don't get this deal by the end of the month, it almost certainly will slip into the fall because then you'll have the Iranian elections, there'll be a new president, the president doesn't take office until September. So you could see the whole thing slip and that gets very dangerous for the United States, opens up new areas of, of conflict. So there's gonna be a real push to get it done this month.
0: I, I really don't know what the technical issues are. So any of you, can, can, the, can the administration just simply say we're back in the deal and and not require any congressional action or anything else? Uh, y-
3: yes, they could. But they don't want to because they want to get clarity first on what the Iranians are going to do to dismantle, to roll no, back. No, no, I understand. I'm just saying. But yes, they-, they could. They don't need congressional approval for this. With s- It depends how exactly they phrase it. Because there are some things that they could do that might trigger um, some of the conditions that were put in place by the Congress when they passed the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, Uh, another acronym uh, that's out there. And so the administration's got to be careful of how they phrase these things. But yes, they can basically go back in. They do not need the Senate to approve or ratify this. It's not a treaty. It's an agreement.
0: That would be Inara.
3: Inara. That's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Okay. We want to just, I just want to keep us consistent here. Um, Corey, assuming just for a moment that the U S does go back into this agreement, there are some among America's allies who would be uncomfortable with this. The Israelis come to mind. They, uh, so do the Saudis, the Israelis seem to be a bit preoccupied at the moment. We'll come back to that. But, uh, do you, do you think that the U.S. pushing forward and getting back on this net-net will cause more turbulence, or in terms of the, the parties to the prior agreement, et cetera, et cetera, it'll actually um, uh, still some old turbulence and net-net and, and be a plus?
1: Net-net be a plus. Um, you know, one of the things that's changed dramatically since uh the Iranian nuclear agreement went into effect is the Abraham Accords. And partly actually, as a result of the Obama administration not consulting allies in the region, um, it and the uh, retrenchment of the United States out of the Middle East, I think spurred a deeper level of recognition and cooperation among the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Egypt. Um, and, uh, and that's advantageous for the stability of the region. Um, you know, the combined effects of Iran's increasing assertiveness and American um, withdrawal from the region, I think reminded the countries in the neighborhood how much they are gonna have to fend for themselves. And they saw commonalities they weren't willing to recognize before. So I do think um, the Abraham Accords are a real achievement from the Trump administration, and that create an opportunity for for the US to deal with Iran in some different ways uh, than they did before there was overt cooperation between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE in particular.
0: I must say, I I never comment on the Abraham Accords because we produce a podcast for the UAE uh, periodically, and so people out there and we talk about this openly, and so people out there might question whether we're being objective. But it's it's kind of hard to, you know, take issue with the fact that having agreement among these nations is net net a positive. It's just sort of commonsensical uh, that the the and it's changed the equation of what's going on on the ground there. I will leave it to others to go into more depth um uh rose i want to change the 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 equation a little bit you have daughters how old's your oldest daughter my oldest daughter is 19 well when she was 16 what did you give her because you know the uh son of the last king of italy gave his (laughs) 16 year old daughter um the right to succeed him in the claim on the throne of italy and so vittoria Christina, Chiara, Adelaide, Maria was put first in line for the royal throne of Italy. Um, and, and she is kind of excited by this because she's an inner, uh, uh, Instagram influencer. And uh, sort of sees this as a way of building a brand. And I know you're an Instagram influencer, and uh, <laughs> and and uh, I, I know the stories of importance to you. I was just wondering if, what your reaction was.
2: Yeah, it's it's so cute. I, I like the fact that the the royal houses of Europe have are just merging completely with the world of uh, social media influencers, and I think that's quite appropriate. In fact, I don't even think that we should bother anymore with with lines of succession. I actually just think whoever has the most Instagram followers in any given country should automatically become the the new monarch. So I'm I'm pleased by this.
1: Who would that make uh, America's monarch, Rosa? Since, as you guys (laughs) know, I need to ask my sister those questions.
2: I I can't answer that question, but I'm going to ask my teenage daughters, because they'll know the answer. I don't know who has the most Instagram followers, but I'm sure that they will.
3: I think well, actually, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez have a have a claim maybe, for that thriller. Maybe, maybe they, they so do. So I would offer actually, my
1: advice to young Victoria, um, which is uh, her namesake, Victor Emmanuel, the original king of a unified Italy, said the only two ways to govern Italy are bayonets and bribery.
0: Wow! You
2: think they should go for the bribery? <laughs> I think, that would be better.
1: Well, I
0: think, think Instagram really changes the equation. Better. And I have to say there's a New yeah. York Times story about Vittoria, um, and uh, it, it has an Instagram shot of her in it. So you should go and Well,
2: Victoria says that this was the best gift her grandfather could give her.
0: Yeah, ex- exactly. By the way, if, if Rosa is correct yeah. uh, about how we should be picking our leaders in the future, um, the, the leader of the free world would be uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, just, just so you know, with 271 million followers. But the leader of the United States would be very close contest between Ariana Grande and Dwayne Johnson.
2: Ooh, ooh, oh, boy. Okay, this is going to be a tough one. Um, well, as it happens, Italy doesn't actually have a king. Um, So this is all kind of a moot point. Um, So given that if Italy doesn't actually have, uh, you know, uh, a monarchy anyway, we can still fight over this. I see no reason why we couldn't continue to fight
0: over this here in the United States, too, just because we don't have a monarchy either. Yeah, I find it kind of interesting because the the last I read, I I think Dwayne Johnson actually is thinking about becoming president. (laughs) Well, there you he's, go. You know, the rock the rock wants to run to to, to be president. And um I, I know We not Joe, only
1: could do worse, we have done worse.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I take the rock. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Go.
0: Yeah, no, no. I think Joe says that because he's very often confused with the rock when he's going down the
3: street. often. I know I'm not him. I'm not him. No autograph. Sorry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the, the hair is a, is a, is a, is a giveaway. Joe, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, the situation in Israel, it's actually yeah. a mess. Yeah. Um, the, the, um, uh, uh, prime minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu had a, to, uh, uh, till a deadline a few days ago to form a new government. He couldn't do it. Um, so we're not sure what's going to succeed him. It probably, by the way, is, is, is going to be a government where the right has uh, a, a dominant role to play, which will clearly have an effect on how they respond to the Iran deal. But in addition to that, um, uh, there have been growing uh, tensions with Palestinians uh, above and beyond the usual tensions that underlie everything, Uh, including um, violence in the past uh, 24 hours. This has kind of put the Biden administration in a bit of a box. The Israelis have said, you know, this is us doing our thing. Leave us alone. Um, The Biden administration came in and was pretty clear that they believe, unlike Trump, unlike Pompeo, uh, in a two-state solution. They believe that the Palestinians need to be respected. and. Honestly, one got the impression they didn't want to have to deal with this. Yeah, and and you know the wheels are coming off the bus again in Israel. I'm just wondering what your take is about how significant that is in the context of the region and what a conundrum it is for the Biden administration.
3: Right. Well, you can appreciate the Biden administration's position. They have their hands full, and they want to deflect as many international crises as they can. And Israel was one of them. They want to reset U.S. Israel relations. You can. See see the biden team has been respectful has been transparent has been consulting with israel but cool you know that they, they waited a month, I think, before they had the, the call with Netanyahu. Um, the, Tony Blinken, the Israel f- f- Foreign Ministry, is way down on his list of calls. But uh, Biden did just meet with the uh, director of Mossad here in Washington l- last week. So the relations are cordial. This is going to be is very complicated. So far, the Biden administration is taking a very even-handed approach, too even-handed, in my view, basically calling for an end of violence on both sides. Uh, and there certainly are provocateurs on both sides, but the major part of this seems to be stimulated by the um, the movement of the right-wing nationalists, the settler movement in Israel, that is pushing to evict uh, Arab families, Palestinian families from East Jerusalem, where they've been living for generations since the division of, of 1948. But because of a, a, a very biased law in Israel, Israel gives Jewish citizens the right to sue for that land in East Jerusalem if, if it was at one point owned by Jews. But it doesn't give Palestinians that right to sue for land in Israel if it was at one point owned by Palestinians. And so the the, the Jewish nationalists have been using this law to try to evict families. They want to pick, get 70 families out of this sector of East Jerusalem. And there's four in particular that are the, the case that's, as you mentioned, Uh, has now been postponed for 30 days, that would be part of this push. And the the ultimate objective is to clear East Jerusalem of Palestinians, and even, of course, part of the larger objective, which is to clear the West Bank of Palestinians. And that's what's the underlying cause. It seems to have been intensified by the actions of the police in this, who have been... very provocative in the way they've been throwing stun grenades, using various crowd suppression techniques, like something they call skunk water, drenching protesters in very foul-smelling water. i tell you how serious it's gotten. The, uh, they called off the flag march just a few hours ago. The flag march is something they've been doing for 30 days or 30 years, where right-wing nationalists will carry Israeli flags through Jerusalem into East Jerusalem to demonstrate Israeli control over this area, this was considered so provocative that the Israeli police just called it off just hours ago. And this, during a very sensitive time when joc- the political parties are jockeying for power, you don't really want to piss off the right-wing nationalists because all sides sort of need some of them to join them to form a block. So that's an indication of how, seriousness, how serious the situation is, even though it's not to the political advantage of the government to block that um, flag march. They felt they just had to try to cool things down. Rockets have been far- fired from, from Gaza. Um, so this, this talk that this could be could quickly escalate into a third intifada. The last intifada was from twenty years ago. I don't know if it's going to go that far. I don't, but it's 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 we're on the knife's edge at this point.
0: Corey, um, there are kind of two schools of thought about this in the way the Israelis are covering it. One is that you know Bibi is kind of letting all this happen because he thinks you know this disruption will make people realize how important it is to have him around. Uh, There's another school of thought that says, all this is happening is because he's distracted and he's not actually able to focus on it. Do you have a a view on it? Do you have a view on whether or not the Biden administration is handling this right?
1: So Michael Gerson had a witty column in the Washington Post castigating Republican House Minority Le- House Minority Leader Republican Kevin McCarthy as the winner of the James Buchanan Prize for political smallness in a time that needs leadership. Um, and I feel like that's also where both Israel and Palestine are. The Palestinians have been so poorly suited, uh, served by their by their elected leadership. And I feel like the Israelis are being incredibly poorly served by the leaders they have chosen as well, which is a long way of saying that uh, I don't think uh, Prime Benjamin Netanyahu lacks the uh, ability to focus on how to um, weaponize potential Palestinian dissent in Israel or beyond, no matter what's going on in the coalition building. And he's no longer got the right to build a coalition that's been passed along. Um, and, and so, you know, fomenting friction between Palestinian and Israeli communities has long been a staple of Netanyahu's leadership. Um, and, and whether he's in control or this is just happening as a result of his long fostering of that dissent. I'm not enough of an expert to know, but it makes me sad for both Israelis and Palestinians. Um, I do, I think the Biden administration, you know, Netanyahu made a big gamble in aligning himself so closely with Trump. Um, And I think the consequences of that gamble are an almost reflective antipathy towards um, him personally and also his political party by Democrats in the United States. A lot of people commented on it at the time um, that that Netanyahu was embracing Trump so closely uh, that this was actually gonna be a problem for the state of Israel because bipartisan support for the security um, and the vitality of the state of Israel, bipartisan support for that in the United States is actually really important. And I think Netanyahu has compromised that and we see it with the hesitation of the Biden administration to get involved here now.
0: Rosa, I'd like to get your views on this, but if you don't wish to comment on it, you wish to tell the world who Jin Yu Zhang is, then I, I, that would also be acceptable. And I would like to decline both requests. No. Um, uh, do, you know um, who Jin, do you know who Jin Yuzhang is? It's a beautiful
2: no. poem!
0: No! Jin Yuzhang is the nephew of Pu Yi, the last emperor of China. And he is the, oh my heir. God. He's the heir to the Chinese <laughs> throne, to the Qing dynasty. And I just, since you were really interested in things like this, I just thought it was important that you track him. He's a former government public servant in China is now retired.
1: So David, I thought you were talking about the uh, ancient Chinese poet who a Chinese businessman
2: uh, posted that's, a poem of... that's totally what I thought you were referring to too, David. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think uh, on, <laughs> on the recent Israeli actions, I mean, I share... I, I
0: knew share. I could get Rosa to talk about Current events.
2: <laughs> uh, you could trick me into it. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I share Corey's sense of what oh, just what a tragedy. What, And I, I do think it's a really interesting question whether this is a sign of Netanyahu losing his grip and being too distracted or whether this is, in fact, a deliberate on his part. And I don't know the answer to that either. I think it may become more clear in the next uh, in the next few weeks as we see how things play out particularly obviously as we see whether it's possible for there to be a coalition government formed by uh, his opponents. Um, Netanyahu has shown a truly amazing ability to cling to power uh, despite over and over and over and over again um, uh, being indicted, uh, being <laughs> receiving fewer votes, et cetera. It's really quite, quite astonishing. Um, so I, I don't know what we'll, we'll, we'll have to see.
0: Um. Yeah. Well, it's also sort of in keeping with this general trend around the world of kind of, you know, populist leaders who don't care that much for democracy, who um, manage to uh, weaken democracy in their own countries. And, uh, you know, I mean, Trump and Netanyahu and Bolsonaro and Modi and Putin and Erdogan and Orban. And, you know,
3: why is this, Joe?
0: Why, why, is, why is all this happening now? <laughs>
3: well, that, that's a, uh, a much larger question that I don't, I don't feel capable of responding, other, other than the overall view that I share that globalization has resulted in a tremendous creation of wealth over the last 30 years, 40 years, that has been grossly, unevenly distributed. And all those people that have been left behind are pissed. And they want what's theirs and there have been a group of populist demagogues around the world who have been very good at organizing that anger and directing it at the others, the the people they blame for it and immigrants Muslims, etc, and that 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 tinder is fueling this right wing populism around the world, including here in the United States, which you can see very clearly it's it's intimate relations to 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 racism. Um, So. That's the overall question. Just very, very quickly back on this East, the East Jerusalem Israeli situation. This represents a real early, early sort of principled problem for the Biden administration. It's not just about his relations with Israel. It's what role really does human rights play in the Biden foreign policy? Because this is fundamentally a human rights issue. What the Israelis are doing by evicting these families is illegal under international law. While there are certainly provocateurs and 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 on the Palestinian side, those firing rockets, for example, or throwing throwing rocks, you know, it's clear that the violence, the state violence, is mainly from Israeli police on the Palestinians. Hundreds have been injured in demonstrations in recent days, some quite seriously, requiring uh, uh, hospitalization. So. What does the Biden administration say about this? Does it continue this even-handed approach? Does it start sticking up for Palestinian human rights? This could get very tricky very quickly. Corey, I
0: saw you nodding. And I recall a month or two ago that you were struck by how often the Biden administration mentioned human rights. Uh, And I I think your point back then was sooner or later these chickens were going to come home to roost and they were gonna have to do something about human rights. Do you think this is gonna be one of the first tests?
1: Yeah, I think Joe raises a really good point in that regard. And um, it may actually be one of the easier tests on human rights for the Biden administration because of Netanyahu's lurch towards Trump um, and in the previous administration. the Biden administration has already sort of created some distance uh, between the government of Israel and itself. And I think um, I could see them, for example, uh, continuing the strong defense, the military to military relationship um, while criticizing police action and, and civil society in Israel. Um, as a way to try and square that circle. But I agree with Joe that it it is a challenge and the administration has been striking such admirable poses on the centrality of human rights and American policy, that it will be difficult to sustain uh, either doing nothing or uh, wholeheartedly supporting the Israeli government in the way the prior administration had.
0: Yeah, Reza, come to you last word here and you can take it whichever direction you want to go but i am struck in listening to all of this that um i think i read somewhere that it was 14 years ago that jimmy carter came out with a book referring to what was going on in israel as apartheid and i remember at the time that i was kind of shocked by the 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 terminology uh and subsequently came to the conclusion that he was right. He was an early proponent of human rights as a centerpiece of foreign policy uh, and has been a kind of conscience of the Democratic Party. I also remember, for example, during the Clinton administration, that he was seen as you know, a nuisance and, and, and the, the Clinton leadership kind of wished he would just mind his own business. But his legacy on sort of keeping people focused on this, I think, is kind of remarkable and, and, and has endured much longer than many people had thought. And I'm just wondering what your view is of keeping human rights at the center of foreign policy like that.
2: I don't think anyone disagrees with that as a general principle. The question is what it actually means. And, you know, the, the different administrations have interpreted that different ways. I think every administration with the exception of Donald Trump's would at least say, yes, of course, human rights is at the center of our foreign policy. Um, They just interpret that very differently. Trump, Trump admittedly, which just didn't care. Um, But, but, you know, the, the, the issue is, what does it mean to keep it at the center? Does it mean that we simply cut off all ties with any, any other state where we strongly disapprove of, of something they're doing on human rights ground? Is the issue that we, we don't necessarily cut off ties, but we, we eliminate certain types of aid. And obviously, legislatively, at least in theory, we're supposed to not provide certain types of aid uh, to states that commit certain types of particularly egregious human rights abuses. Um, but but you know the devil is in the details on all of this and and I think it that remains the case um, you know that that I mean to me I you know I'm with Jimmy Carter on uh, Israel uh, and I in fact think that we the U S continues to subsidize Israel in a wide range of ways that goes sort of above and beyond what is merited either by our regional interests or by Israeli policies. Um, Um, But I don't but this has been a a, that that support for Israel, despite their increasingly appalling internal policies has has been embraced by both Democratic and Republican administrations, including all of the ones that assert that they are putting human rights at the center of our foreign policy. So so I, I think Carter I think Carter's call for that to be central is entirely appropriate. But you know, he too, during his own presidential administration, was quite inconsistent as to the degree to which he he in fact uh, made it a, a sort of hard criteria for various types of cooperation. I, I don't think it's an e- I don't mean to imply that I think it's an easy issue. I don't, because I think that there, as we've discussed many times, there are all sorts of reasons why we may, we may need to cooperate. Uh, uh, and even temporarily ally ourselves with regimes that do nasty things. The question is, you know, how much, when, under what circumstances, for how long, to what degree? And I don't think any of us have really good uh, consistent answers to those issues across the board. Although I I, I think that the US when it comes to Israel has quite consistently uh, erred on the side of uh, making human rights uh, be insufficiently high on our list of priorities.
0: I, I strongly agree on that. And and by the way, for those of you who are interested in, uh, you know, whose first reaction is, well, it's the politics and, you know, it's the influence of Group X, uh, I, I commend you to an interview that was conducted uh, over the weekend, I think, with uh, Ron Dermer, the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., in which he said... Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the ones we have to depend on for support are, are not the Jews because they're too critical of us. It's the Christian evangelicals. And there has been this, this shift. And, and he sort of spoke the words out loud. And that's why, you know, Mike Pompeo was out in front of this as he was anyway, we will surely return to this. Um, but uh Interesting discussion today, and I'm very grateful to uh, all of you. Joe, thanks for coming back. Hopefully you will come back again soon.
3: Anytime. uh, If
0: only because by having you on periodically, we'll get Corey to honor that baseball debt to you sooner (laughs) or later. Um, And um, Corey and Rosa, thanks, of course, to you. We have a lot of interesting stuff coming up. I particularly want to commend you to conversation that we are having tomorrow. Um that's going to involve Ed Luce and Kavita Patel plus an activist from India on the situation in India regarding COVID, um, where the numbers that you're hearing are outrageous and they're all wrong. And the 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 excess deaths, the deaths above predicted levels in India already are, are probably over a million. Um and uh what's what's going on there is a Absolute catastrophe. And so, one of the things I'm, I'm pleased about is we're actually going to have somebody on the ground who is there talking about it for this special. And of course, we'll have everything else we do. So, go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information about that. And if you so desire, uh, want to support the kind of thing we're doing, click on membership and become a member. We'd appreciate it. In the meantime, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.